3: you everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show, live at YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Watch out, Apple, Google, and
2: Amazon. Here comes Elizabeth Warren with the big sledgehammer. Hey, what do you say, everybody? Here we go. It's Monday, March 11. Can you believe it? Good to see you today. Hope you had a great weekend and are ready to dive into uh, another big week, another big news week. Every week is a big news week here in the Trump administration, in the tr- era of Donald Trump, as short as it may be, and uh, hopefully uh, over even before the next two years are up. But we got lots to talk about, lots going on here in Washington, D.C., around the country and around the globe. We start out in Washington and our uh, little Perch here on Capitol Hill, just down the street from the United States Capitol Building, with the news of the day from this end of Pennsylvania Avenue, uh, what's happening uh, at the Congress, the other end of Pennsylvania Avenue, what's happening down at the White House and around the rest of the country, around the globe. We'll bring you the news of the day and uh, look forward to hearing from you what you think about it all. Yeah, there is lots to talk about. Remember that big spa or that, Not such a big, that little spa where Robert Kraft, owner of the Patriots, uh, was allegedly uh, hanging out uh, and engaging in illegal activities. Well, it turns out the owner of that spa was hanging out at Mar-a-Lago and bringing guests down there and introducing them to our president, Donald Trump. Yeah. What's going on? We're going to hear more about that You bet. Uh, Her name is Cindy Yang? Cindy Yang? Yes. Remember that name. You're going to hear a lot more about it. Uh, It is a Bill Press show. Remember, your comments welcome on Twitter, at BP Show, at BP Show. Okay, get ready to go. But first... (laughs) This is the Full Court Press.
3: All righty, just a couple of other stories making news. So remember it was last month, CNN made the big announcement that they had hired Sarah Isger. You remember her? Yeah. All right, she's a former spokeswoman for For Jeff Jeff Sessions Sessions at the Justice Department and a longtime GOP operative. Well, CNN over the weekend announced... They hired
2: her as an editor. Exactly.
3: CNN announced that they are changing her title because she was originally hired, as you said, a political editor, and now it has been switched to a political analyst. So she is no longer going to be in charge of the editorial content Uh, on CNN. Thank God. Which is smart, although political analyst is still, I don't know why they keep hiring uh, Uh, terrible Republicans for these jobs. I guess
2: Rick Santorum's not always available,
3: right? I guess, right? Okay, I know you hate drugs.
2: Hate drones. drones. Oh no, you hate yeah. drones.
3: But here's a good drone story. Good there drone are, there story. are some good drones. Yeah, well here's here's a case. <laughs> uh drone com- there's a drone company called uh Flirty. Flirty. And they have received approval from the FAA to conduct drone delivery flights where they take defibrillators to patients who are having a heart attack. So if you think you're having a heart attack and you call 911, obviously they want to get an ambulance out to you as soon as possible. But what's faster than an ambulance? A drone. And they will deliver these defibrillators, these external defibrillators, to these heart attack patients to help stabilize them while the ambulance is on their way
2: will work in some places. It won't work in a high-rise building, you know. No, in, certainly in, not. It won't work in big cities. Certainly not, but it'll, no.
3: it'll, it'll work in a lot of places, yeah, especially yeah. places where there are uh, right. there's a more rural population. Yeah. Or more yeah. suburban population. Right, right. By I the, knew you'd find a way to get, to, to hate the story.
2: <laughs> well, I'm just saying, it's, yeah, it's just like delivering your pizza, you know, on a high-rise. Yeah. It doesn't always work. Yeah, it won't uh, work. Um, I saw a story this morning about drones that bark. And they're being used to um, herd uh, wildlife. Uh, oh, not wildlife, but like um, cattle. Yeah, yeah, or sheep.
3: Or so instead of a sheep dog, you have yeah, a sheep drone. Exactly, a yeah. sheep drone. <laughs> oh <And> it, man,
2: <laughs> it keeps your herd in line. You know, just uh, <laughs> you know, I don't
3: want to see any more sheep dogs lose their jobs.
2: I don't know whether they're furry or not. But... <laughs>
3: This is the Bill Press Show.
2: Yes, indeed. Donald Trump, he wasn't happy with uh, $5 billion or $7 billion for the wall. Uh-uh. His new budget, he's still back at it. Now he wants $8.6 billion for his wall. No lesson learned with the shutdown. What do you say, everybody? Happy Monday. It is Monday, March 11. Good to see you. Thank you for joining us. Bill Press Show, that's us, coming to you live from Washington, D.C., with the news of the day, ready for your comments. Send us your comments on Twitter, at BP Show, as we join you online, we join you on the radio, and we join you on television all across this great country of ours, USA, USA. Indeed, we reach all of you with our progressive slant on the news of the day, and thanks so much for being part of the program. As we join you, yes, online on YouTube, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show, which is also where you will find our podcast. And we urge you to sign up the podcasts for our podcast and rate the podcast. That helps us a lot. We join you on the radio statewide in Indiana on Indiana Talks and uh, on the great WCPT, the big progressive voice of Chicago and Chicago roundabouts. And we're looking at you on television, on Free Speech TV, indeed nationwide as well. Uh, yes, indeed, you're going to hear more about this story. Uh, Mother Jones broke this story uh, over the weekend, uh, two different editions about well, we remember um, it was uh, what about ten days ago that a story came out that Robert Kraft, the owner of the Patriots, was busted because uh, his name showed up on a list of patrons of a certain. Spa down in uh, Palm Beach, which was um, engaged in illicit activities. Uh, In other words, paying for sex, uh, allegedly, in the case of Robert Kraft and the others on the list. Uh, Pretty embarrassing for Mr. Kraft, of course, and uh, Mr. Kraft, a big friend of Donald Trump. Of course, Donald Trump said he was so sorry about it, didn't know anything about it. Uh, Well, now it turns out uh, that there is a... Would't you know it? A Trump connection. Yes, indeed. again, as revealed by and reported by uh, Mother Jones. The owner of the spa, Lee Yang, or now she no longer, she did own this spa. She still owns other spas. She has sold this particular one, but she owned it at the time Robert Kraft was there. Uh, Lee Yang, who goes by the name of Cindy Yang, um, has a Donald Trump connection. She actually uh, operated a while well, she had the spa. She had another business. She has about three or four businesses. Uh, another business that, um, well, their mission was to introduce Chinese business executives to Donald Trump by taking them to lunch for dinner or whatever receptions at Mar a Lago. She hanging out at Mar a Lago and selling access. Uh, to Mar-a-Lago and, therefore, to Donald Trump, to these business executives, Chinese business executives visit, visiting the United States. Uh, as if that wasn't, I mean, that's already pretty sticky, pretty sleazy, as if that's not bad enough. Mother Jones followed that up with a second story uh, that Cindy Yang also had a co- owns a couple of other businesses which have direct ties, like any business in China does, to the Chinese government so it turns out uh, that Cindy Yang this alleged friend of Donald Trump hanger on at Mar-a-Lago bringing business executives to meet with Donald Trump could also be operating as an informant a spy for the China or uh, an agent of the Chinese government um, Sarah Huckabee Sanders of course for the time being says This has nothing to do with the president. They don't know anything about it. Uh, We just want to start there this morning because uh, watch this story. This is a developing story we're going to hear more about. Uh, For his part, Donald Trump was at Mar-a-Lago this weekend. Uh, On the way, he, uh, first of all, met with reporters uh, while leaving the White House, Uh, had a few choice things to say. Uh, about, uh, first of all, Michael Cohen, this, <laughs> remember, uh, Donald Trump saying what a great guy Michael Cohen was just a few months ago. Michael Cohen said he would take a bullet for Donald Trump. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> that little relationship has, has, uh, <laughs> has <laughs> gone up in flames. Uh, Donald Trump now saying he's a bad dude,
3: bad lawyer. I had a bad <laughs> lawyer. Go ahead. That happens.
2: Yeah, that happens. I hired a bad <laughs> lawyer. He was his lawyer for 10 years. He was his personal lawyer, his confidant, his partner in business deals, his fixer for 10 years. Oh, man. Uh, And Donald Trump says, (laughs) I guess it takes one to know one. He's a
3: liar. Michael Cohn lied about the pardon. I was a stone cold lie. And he's
2: lied about a lot of things. But when he lied about the pardon, that was really a lie. (laughs) And you know what, in this case, it may have been because according to Michael Cohen's own attorney, uh, one of his attorneys, Landy Davis, uh, that former attorneys, previous attorneys for Michael Cohen did uh, approach the Trump administration about a possible pardon for him. That's before things went south. Um, Before leaving the president, uh, Donald Trump also said, um, you know, on the Paul Manafort sentencing, he totally, he... Donald Trump totally misrepresents what the judge in that case said. Before the judge gave Paul Manafort this ridiculously light sentence of 47 months, he pointed out, he said, I want to make it clear so that everybody understands that this trial, this particular trial, had nothing to do with the Robert Mueller investigation into possible collusion between the Trump administration and the Russian government. In other words, that's what the judge said. This trial had nothing to do with the charges of collusion or the investigation of possible collusion. Here is how Donald Trump misinterpreted the judges. And by the way, deliberately misinterpreted the judge's Uh, comments. The judge said there was no collusion with
3: Russia. This had nothing to do with collusion. (laughs) There was no collusion. It's a collusion hoax. It's a collusion witch hoax. I don't collude with Russia.
2: A collusion witch hoax. That's a new one. That's a new one. But that's, you heard it. That's not what the judge said. The judge did not say there was no collusion with Russia. He said this trial was about other stuff. Just so you understand. Paul Manafort's being investigated by Robert Mueller in a different trial, in a different investigation, for what he knows about possible collusion, this trial in Alexandria was all about tax fraud and about financial hanky panky and other stuff that they'll look into. That's what the judge was saying. Donald Trump trying, of course, um, to yet make yet again make the case that uh, there that there is no collusion. We don't know that yet. And then uh, on his way to uh, Mar a Lago for the weekend, another weekend of, yet another weekend of golf, uh, Donald Trump stopped in Alabama uh, to uh, visit with some of the victims of the uh, tornadoes there last week. And in the meantime, well, he, uh, <clears throat> well, why not? Just signed a few Bibles. Now, look, I don't know about you. I find that so gross, so disgusting. I mean, Okay, it's not against the law. I'll make that clear. You didn't do anything illegal. I just think it's a totally classless act. You know, I don't care what religion you belong to or, or if you're even a non believer. I think the Bible is a holy text, it's a sacred text. So is the Koran, so is the Torah. It's not a political prop. Uh, and Donald Trump, he not only signed these Bibles, he signed them. If you've seen the picture, he signed them on the front cover.
3: Yeah. Yeah.
2: You know, with this, by the way, this, it's not just a signature, right? It's like a billboard, you know, with the black, black uh, Sharpie. Like, I like a Sharpie too. I use a blue one. Um, <laughs> black Sharpie. <laughs> boom, 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 boom. You know, as if he wrote the damn thing, right? I mean. He probably just,
3: thinks he did. He probably thinks he did. Yeah. You know, it's his second that- favorite book. <laughs> yeah, of course, right? <laughs> right. His
2: first, we know his first favorite book, right? Art of the Deal, which I think at one time he claimed sold more copies than the Bible.
3: I'm sure he did. Uh, that yeah, right. Non-brand.
2: Yeah, I, I would say it's just gross. You know, it's just it's just tacky, um, and uh, it just seems to me there's a there's an it's, it's it's an easy answer. You know, if somebody says you'll sign me a Bible, it says you know you know please, I I think that's a sacred text. I'll sign anything else. I'll sign your hat. You know, uh, I'll, I'll sign your poster or whatever. Uh, I think it's right to sign a Bible. Now, some people pointed out, yeah, he's not the first president to sign a Bible. Okay, I I grant that. The few times that people can account, recount where, where presidents did sign Bibles were very, very special occasions. FDR signed the Bible he was sworn in on. It was a family Bible of the Attorney General of the United States. He said, Mr. President, would you sign my Bible? They just... I mean I can see that even then I'm not, I think president roosevelt could have said let me sign something else whatever sure sure but it was a very you see a very special occasion it was not at a at a surrounded by political supporters putting your great big name on the front of the bible i got a better idea right maybe instead of signing the bible
3: what if donald trump read it <laughs> <laughs>
2: oh you're asking a lot that is. I just ask you a lot. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, start with the New Testament, Mr. President, and uh, maybe you'll learn something. On Friday, um, oh, by the way, yeah, we're going to hear more about this uh, for the rest of the week. Uh, today, we are going to see, I believe it's today, the release of the Donald Trump budget for the next year. So you think he learned his lesson? Boy, I'm not going to get money out of Congress for my wall. Um, probably the Senate's going to vote on Thursday. To join the House in uh, revoking uh, the national emergency to build the wall, Donald Trump will veto it. Um, but at any rate, uh, we had a 35-day shutdown. Donald Trump did not, which did not result in one dollar for the wall. Uh, but now Donald Trump is back with his budget, hasn't been released yet, but it's re- reported over the weekend from leaks from the White House that his budget will include mm-hmm. not five, not seven this time. 8.6 billion dollars for the wall. The less he gets the more he demands. I guess that's part it's of the, the art of the deal bill part of the art of the no deal yeah, right uh, And uh, at the same time, while he is asking for uh, again what has been reported for 8.6 billion dollars for the wall, uh, he's also uh, wants to increase the Pentagon budget. why? Only because Donald Trump, will just thinks the answer to anything is just to throw more money at the Pentagon. There's absolutely zero reason, There's zero demand on the part of the Pentagon or the generals, uh, zero need uh, expressed or evidence for uh, a massive increase in the Pentagon budget. But Donald Trump's budget would increase the Pentagon spending from $7.6 billion to $750 billion. I guess, Peter, maybe to buy more of those drones. Uh, I'm sure. And he would pay for those cuts and pay for the wall by cutting uh, environmental programs and social services, Social Security, and Medicare by $2.7 trillion over the next decade. Uh, the only thing you can say, good you can say about the Donald Trump budget is uh, it's dead on arrival, just like every president's budget is just about uh, in fact, it's been years, I don't know how long, somebody can tell us, how many years has been since Congress actually passed a budget. All we've had for the last few years is a set of continuing resolutions, which keeps the government running, but no budget has been passed. I don't think even under Barack Obama there's any budget passed. We'll we'll double check that. Uh, so, so the president's budget is going to go nowhere, but it does show... Uh, for him, what the priorities are: uh, more money for the wall, more money for the military, uh, less money for average uh, Americans. On the um, on the congressional front, though, one bit of good news, and you know this kind of got lost. The House on Friday passed a hugely important bill called H.R. One. Uh, we talked about it a little bit. It was the number one priority for Democrats. This year in the House, that's that T.Here's the name H.R. One, uh, and it really is a historic piece of legislation which encompasses campaign finance reform, ethics reform, and voting rights reform. Here is the uh, had 234 sponsors in the House. By the way, uh, here is the uh, announcement of the vote. Friday, we're lopsided vote, Friday afternoon.
0: On this vote, the yeas are 234, the nays are 193, the bill is passed.
2: Bill is passed, and as Speaker Pelosi says, this is something we are proud to uh, hang our hats on.
1: This is, in our view, an historic day, a pivotal day, a day that will make a difference as we go forward.
2: You know, I think it's true uh, that this does not have a prayer of passing the Senate. Uh, Mitch McConnell thinks uh, he, he's been attacking it as a uh, as anti-democratic, anti-American. Uh, but I think it's important. It is important that Democrats pass this just to show that what who, Demo, who Democrats are and what Democrats stand for. Uh, just uh, just a quick summary of the um, major provisions. Of HR1, important to keep in mind, as I mentioned first, campaign finance creates a small donor matching fund system for congressional and presidential candidates. In other words, public financing for campaigns, getting away, getting the campaign, big campaign contributions entirely out of the system, expands the prohibition of foreign political donations. Uh, and requires super PACs and dark money groups to make all of their contributions public, total transparency. Major, major campaign finance reform. Ethics reform, get this, mandates that presidents and vice presidents, candidates for those offices, release 10 years of their tax returns. Makes it a law that if you're running for president or vice president, you must release Your tax returns also creates an ethics code for the Supreme Court, which, believe it or not, does not exist, and bars members of Congress from serving on corporate boards, which some of them do, getting extra income. Again, very significant uh, ethics reform. Voting rights, Uh, here's maybe the, the most sweeping, allow citizens to register to vote online, to be registered automatically on their birthday, requires paper ballots in any federal elections, makes Election Day a national holiday, prohibits voter roll purging, and ends bipartisan gerrymandering by having independent commissions draw up new congressional district lines. Uh, So no more gerrymandering uh, gerrymandering um, because the, the legislators would not be drawing the rules. Those things, if you add those three together, I mean, it's huge,
3: huge. I mean, you know, we, we've talked a lot about how Democrats have sort of uh, given up the fight over voting over yeah, the last right. yeah. decade or more uh, mm-hmm. and look this is a great step into fixing that problem. Yeah. The Republicans sort of ran laps around them for a generation. Yeah. You know,
2: and uh, I was uh, joining our our good friend uh, Julie Mason on the Sirius XM Friday afternoon, and she and I were debating this back and forth about whether Democrats are just wasting their time passing legislation like this when you know it's not going to pass the Senate. Absolutely not. They're not wasting their time. They're showing who they are and who, what they stand for and what they believe in. And this is who the Democratic Party isn't making the contrast. You know, just because Mitch McConnell, and it's is the argument I make at any rate, just because Mitch McConnell doesn't like it doesn't mean— You sit on your hands like John Boehner did or or the Congress did under John Boehner or Paul Ryan and do nothing. American people want to see some action. This is action and this is an important action. Uh, And uh, I I think Republicans would make a hard time trying to argue against it. I'd like to hear them stand up and say, why um, making Election Day a national holiday, for example, or why voting on a weekend rather than on a Tuesday so that more people can participate in the electoral process, I'm to hear them argue why that's a bad idea, why it's not a good idea to have as many Americans as possible vote in every election.
3: You know, yeah, put them to the test.
2: But, but They'll it's try, certain- by the way. Oh, yeah. Mitch McConnell
3: uh, has already tried, talking oh, about yeah. how terrible of an idea know. Oh, yeah. national <laughs> holiday is for yeah. voting.
2: Right. Uh, meanwhile... On the 2020 front, a lot happening. A lot of uh, the presidential candidates for 2020. But I did a list, um, by the way, yesterday last night, Peter. Uh, where Where is it? Here it is. Uh, 14. 14 in.
3: Officially in.
2: Officially in. All right. Right. So on the sidelines, we still have Steve Bullock from Montana, Joe Biden, former vice VP, of course, Terry McAuliffe, the ones that I know on the side, Terry McAuliffe, former governor of Virginia, and Beto O'Rourke. Don't forget. Oh.
3: Senator Michael Bennett. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> right. Who might actually get in. I don't know if he is or not, but the, John Hickenlooper, who did announce last week, uh, says yeah. he thinks he's getting in.
2: Uh, I think, or whatever that's worth. Uh, that's not the only thing John Hickenlooper is wrong about. Uh <laughs> And then of the 14, I mean, I think you can break them down into like the serious candidates right off the bat, whom I would include Bernie, Elizabeth Warren, Kamala Harris, I think. Then I'd say you've those,
3: got, are the, the, those are the top tier candidates.
2: Right yeah. Now. And then you got the ones who are like maybe who potentially could emerge. Uh, and I would include in that list. Um, Amy Klobuchar, Cory Booker, Kirsten Gillibrand, Jay Inslee. Any of the senators, for sure. Yeah, Jay Inslee. I think. Uh, I'd even put um, Julian. I mean, Julian Castro and uh, Pete Buttigieg in there. Sure. Yeah, and then you got the ones who are are you, are you serious kind <laughs> of group. Yeah. That I would I would include John Hickenlooper there, John Delaney, Tulsi Gabbard. Mary Ann Williamson and yeah. sadly our friend Andrew Yang. Yeah, yeah, right. Good people.
3: Yeah, Just good. Not, right. not super serious case. right?
2: But never going to make it. Yeah. So that's how I kind of I kind of. Well, anyway, they were all out on the road uh, the other day uh, over the weekend. Most of them down at um, SXSW. They call that's, it. Yeah, that's right. South by Southwest is that the? Yeah, that's it. And uh, Jay Inslee among among them talking about we got to get rid if we're going to get anything done. Got to get rid of the filibuster.
3: We have to have people who are willing to shake things up in Washington, D.C. to end this filibuster because we will not be able to, to do a single thing on climate change as long as that filibuster exists.
2: Uh, he's right about that. Uh, Julian Castro, separate, different, differentiating himself from uh, all of the other candidates, by being the one candidate who said that we should not dismiss the idea of paying reparations to descendants of American slaves. I believe that we should because I don't think that this country is ever going to
3: truly heal from that original sin until we do address reparations.
2: That question has been around for a long time. Even African Americans are split on that issue. Julian Castro coming out pretty strongly. Uh, But the one who made the most news, I guess, over the weekend with a big new idea was Elizabeth Warren uh, saying that... um, uh, like Standard Oil was, and or ATT was considered too big at one time and stifling competition in this country. That today, that is true of the hot big tech giants: Amazon, Google, and um, um, Apple, uh, among others.
3: Facebook. I mean, there are a ton Facebook, of them. Facebook, right? Yeah.
2: Uh, and she said that uh, the FTC ought to break them up. She made that statement first in Long Island uh, uh, after Amazon burned there and, uh, or ran away from there, I should say. And then she went out to the, the South by Southwest Conference, which is the high-tech conference, right? Absolutely. So right in the lion's den, she repeated her, her, uh, her idea.
4: That opportunity to do what you do best. To come up with a great idea, to work your heart out, to make it happen, to be able to compete on a level playing field is taken away by these platform giants.
2: Yeah. So she says you want more competition. That's what capitalism is all about. Here's the way to get there.
4: Break those things apart and we will have a much more competitive, robust market in America. That's how capitalism should work.
3: By the way, I just want to point out we have a poll up on Twitter at at BP Show about whether Elizabeth Warren. Uh, is right and whether or not this is a winning issue
2: good let's find out what people think about yeah absolutely by the, I've got to say um, again uh, I, I am not I'm, I keep getting asked by people okay who's your candidate this time I'm just I haven't I haven't bounced yet I haven't pounced yet on any candidate I'm not riding any particular horse I'm waiting to see who gets in what the field is and again who looks like the strongest candidate candidate against Donald Trump having said that I have to say Elizabeth Warren is emerging as the, the candidate with the big ideas of this year. I mean, she came out for universal child care right off the bat. Uh, she's the first one to come out with a uh, higher tax on the very wealthiest of Americans. Kamala Harris is also uh, and uh, and others have, have proposed that, but Elizabeth Warren was the first. And now this idea of breaking up the 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 big high tech companies. Uh, so she's uh, sh- she's the She's, I think, the front-runner in terms of throwing new, big, bold ideas out there. Uh, You can agree or disagree with them. I'm just saying she's leading that charge, I believe, very effectively. Uh, So that just gets us started there. By the way, uh, just one final little note. Um, The latest poll in Iowa. (laughs) Yeah, God, Iowa. The Iowa caucuses still do nominate uh, Joe Biden, who hasn't announced yet, comes out number one with 27 Followed 27% among Democrats in the Iowa caucuses at this point today. That that is going to change many times between now and then. He's at 27%. Bernie Sanders at 25%. Elizabeth Warren in third place at 9%. This sort of shows how they stack up coming in.
3: One of the things that was really interesting about that was not so much uh, who they favored and who came out on top, but where their second choice went. Mm -hmm. So Joe Biden was the winner in terms of that poll, right? But a large chunk of the second choice of Joe Biden voters were for Bernie Sanders. So, if Joe Biden doesn't get in,
2: yeah, right. It's
3: good news for Bernie Sanders. For now anyway. I mean, you know, we both agree that this is it's very early.
2: Too bad we don't have that tier voting like they have in San Francisco. Yeah, right. You get to vote for your first and your second. (laughs) Yeah,
3: exactly.
2: As we mentioned, one of the things in the president's budget, he wants to pay for the wall and pay for more military spending by cutting environmental programs, cutting environmental spending. What's the latest on the environment? Our good friend Colin O'Mara from the National Wildlife Federation joins us in studio. Coming up next, a little bit later, Elena Schneider will be here from Politico to give us a rundown on 2020. And then Sochi Inahosa from the National Democratic Committee on why the DNC has banned Fox from any of the Democratic debates this year. Next with Colin Amer. Quick break. We'll be right back.
3: This is The Bill Press Show.
2: How battled on a Monday, March 11? Uh, great to see you, folks. Thanks so much for joining us here as we come to you live from Washington, D.C., our nation's capital. Uh, well, we're brought to you today by the United Steelworkers and their international president, one and only Leo Girard, United Steelworkers, North America's largest industrial union, representing over 1.2 million active and retired members. Check out their good work at their website, usw.org. Uh, and welcome from the National Wildlife Federation Colin Namara here in studio with us. Colin, it's good to see you. Bill, thanks for having me on. Thanks so much for coming back. We got lots and lots to talk about. Your uh, your uh, responsibilities are so widespread
1: here. <laughs> more, more every day with this administration. <laughs> yeah,
2: exactly. <laughs> uh, before we jump into it, uh, Peter's got some comments from uh, our last half hour.
1: Yes, uh, indeed.
3: Yes, indeed. We're on Twitter. At BP Show, at BP Show, I mentioned before we took a break there, uh, we have a poll up. Do you agree with Elizabeth Warren that big tech companies like Amazon, Google, and Facebook need to be broken up? The poll is very young, uh, so we don't. there's not a ton of votes yet, so go there and make your voice heard. Uh, but as of right now, 72% of you say yes, no, 13%, undecided, 15%. So overwhelmingly, people agree with Elizabeth Warren. A couple of comments on that, by the way. KG says, uh, in terms of the big issues, think about Elizabeth Warren, Jay Inslee as the ticket for Democrats in 2020. Any thoughts, Bill?
2: Uh, well, two big thinkers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. for sure. Two great leaders. Right.
3: Absolutely. Also on H.R. 1, this is a sad comment, but I think it's probably true. Mitch McConnell won't even bring H.R. 1 up for a vote, and the media will make it die. So they'll just stop covering it. Mitch McConnell's not going to bring it up for a vote. Also, uh, Sad
2: but true, but not a reason for... Again, not acting.
3: Certainly right? not. Yeah, no, that's right. And uh go Beckley, go Beckley on uh Twitter says, Bill, did you hear what Donald Trump got on his SATs? <laughs> Catch up. Oh. That's what he got on his SATs. <laughs> Do you have a comment on any topic at any time? Find us on Twitter at BP Show.
2: All right. Uh yes, keep those comments coming. We uh, enjoy hearing from you. So um overall I just saw this morning. So the president wants eight point six billion Colin, out of his uh, in his uh, budget, which hasn't been released yet, but leaks from the White House, uh, and um, another fifty billion, I think, for the military. Uh, but he wants to cut two point uh, no two point six yeah two point seven trillion out of domestic spending, of course, including money
1: for environmental programs. I mean, like at a, at a time when we've seen record forest fires, you know, hurricanes, we've seen. We have drought conditions in the West. We have, you know, a bunch of species that kind of the point of extinction. They're cutting the very collaborative program, proposing, you know, cutting the very collaborative programs that are necessary to make communities safer and more resilient, you know, and, and try to save some things. And, like, I mean, you know, the good thing is that the president can propose whatever he wants, and Congress already has said that this is dead on arrival. And it's interesting because it's not the Democrats that are saying it. it's You know, it's, it's you know, folks like Tom Cole from Oklahoma that are saying hey, this is just a, you know, preposterous budget proposal again. And so... You know, it, it's just it's just so far divorced from the reality of what we're seeing that hopefully Congress will start with a blank sheet of paper and, you know, actually put together a budget that makes sense. Right. Uh, and some of those cuts, of course, come at EPA,
2: which has already been hammered pretty hard. Yeah, and, and this is like,
1: I mean, I know the, the narrative is that, um, you know, Republicans, you know, have been you know, bad on the environment the last few years. I mean, the president proposed a 39% cut his first year, 31% cut, I think, the second year. Almost all those funding levels were put back in a bipartisan, completely bipartisan way. So, I mean, I think at least on the funding side, um you know the, whatever the president proposes will be summarily dispatched by the uh, by the appropriators in the house right uh i i i was uh, trying to remember earlier
2: how many years has been actually since the congress either under obama or trump have passed a actually passed a budget right it's just been a series of continuing
1: resolutions for the most part yeah it's, last year i mean so we actually had one we had we, a, did, we had a oh, final deal yeah um you know it was painful yeah <laughs> it was, it was painful to get there, but the, um, yeah, I mean, so I think, you know, the opportunities for some level of bipartisanship is there as they're, you know, warring over other issues. And you kind of know when the bu- president's budget is released that the final budget is going to look nothing like right. what comes out of the White House, right? No, now. exactly. And I think in this case, you know, they'll start with last year's levels. They'll try to plus up some things. And obviously, the um, you know, under Speaker Pelosi, they'll try to, you know, have a more democratic kind of imprint on the on the budget and in areas like immigration, hopefully the environment and some others, and infrastructure. Um, but, you know, again... <laughs> He can propose whatever he wants, but they're just not going to take it seriously. Have we seen any improvement in, in from from an environmental policy point
2: of view uh, in the new leadership of EPA and the new leadership of
1: Interior, with Pruitt gone and Zinke gone? I mean, it's hard, right? Because it was it was so bad um, under <laughs> under Scott Pruitt. I mean, I think Andrew Wheeler has been um, more deliberative. I mean, the stuff he's putting forward is more likely to stick in the in the courts compared to you know, most of the things that Pruitt tried to do will it be, be defeated. Well, that could be. Good or bad. Yeah, exactly. And then I think, you know, there's places where, you know, related to a very small number of chemicals, a very small number of policies, he's sort of done the right thing. But then you could compare that to him uh, undermining the rationale for, like, the mercury rule that helps, you know, make sure kids' brains don't, you know, develop in bad ways. Um, The fuel economy standards is still a big fight with California leading the way. Um, you know, you're seeing coal-fired power plants. Yeah, I mean, you're seeing you're seeing him step back on I mean, some he's basic a former concepts. coal industry lobbyist. Exactly, right? and so he you know he worked on these issues for for years, and I think you know the, the Clean Water Rule that they that they're trying to tear down right now is you know also in place, and then the Clean Power Plan, like you mentioned. So, you know, I mean, again, I mean, for every you know two or three little things they're doing, they're doing fifty horrible things, and I think that's the balance that I think folks have to you know, kind of continue to push against. Right,
2: uh, and in interior, is there still this effort to um, for example, national monuments, national parks—we uh, have too many of them,
1: God, and some of them are too big. Yeah, I'm sure there's no clamor among the American people for that, but no, and no support so, at all. And in, in the, um, you know, the, obviously the big underpinning of the 887 billion dollar outdoor economy we have in this country. Um, you know, I think we're hearing less about that. I mean, like they're still going like gangbusters on the oil and gas leasing, um, including some things during the shutdown, which I think is. is was not the intention oil and
2: gas leasing on public land public
1: I'm entirely on public lands um we're still waiting for the five-year plan on offshore and trying you know all the governors republican and democrats from maine all the way down to florida also they don't want it so we'll see what, what comes out there as well as the western governors with the exception of alaska um and you know it's, it's hard because they they'll do some good things on you know trying to have migration corridors make sense but then they'll also propose leasing in some of those same exact corridors for oil and gas drilling and you know, I think again it's just, you know, we need a we need a kind of a sea change in both those agencies. Right. Um
2: really right under your um your your scope here as the national president of the national CEO and president of the National Wildlife Federation, I saw recently where um Interior is proposing lifting the um
1: endangered species category for the, for
2: the, the gray wolves. Wolf? Yeah,
1: for the grey wolves. Yeah, and, and so, like, I mean, in one way, Gray Wolf's recovery is one of the great Americans' success stories, right? I mean, the populations in, like, in, in, in Minnesota and Michigan and Wisconsin are pretty healthy, um, pretty healthy right now in, in, the, in the Northern Rockies and places like Wyoming and um, in Montana and, and Idaho to some extent um, and, and a little bit in Washington and, and even a little bit in Oregon. But, the, they, again, the, the administration just overreaches, right? So they propose, in this case, delisting for the entire lower 48 the historical range for the, for the Gray Wolf is in 29 different states. So there's no real way to make the case there. So, again, we'll wind up with litigation that causes more uncertainty um, as opposed to investing in those places that are trying to do reintroductions and trying to make sure the populations are healthy. And I just... You know, there, there are places where I think we think the gray wolf could be delisted because the populations are healthy, but they need to do it nationwide is absolutely just not based on science. But delisting equals hunting, right? Does, well, it, it, equals state man, it equals state management, right? And so in some cases, the states may may allow that. In other cases, they may say that the populations are, aren't robust enough to do that. We've seen that with things like grizzly bears, right, where some states tried to move ahead. Other states didn't. The court stepped in. Um, and, you know, and, and I'm a, as a former state guy, I mean, I like the idea of state management, but I want some rationality and the basis for these delisting decisions. And I think in this case, the science wasn't quite there.
2: And they, the gray wolf was at one point an endangered species, right? I mean, oh, yeah. their numbers yeah. were, were yeah. that low. So it seems to me that the that this is sort of a contradictory policy in that, well, okay, we take steps to uh, help the population, right, regain or, or bounce back. And once they bounce back, then we go, Declare war against them again. I've seen that with a, uh, with a, um, mountain lions or so cougars and right. mountain lions in California. Yeah, right? and this, this is where we,
1: need, we need balance, right? Because you want to have the states have you – know, I, I like having states have management authority. It makes a lot of sense from from a lot of resource points of view. But the recovery plans um, and kind of the post-delisting plans have to make sense make sure the populations are robust so we don't wind up in this kind of boom and bust cycle like we've seen with some other species. And so. You know, I think again just more rationality more science um, and kind of cooler heads need to prevail
2: are wolves a serious problem for livestock
1: like I mean there are places they're, they're a predator right but they're in, so but for every you know calf they may take it's on, on the landscape um, and we actually help compensate people for some of those programs with some of our partner organizations um, the impact they provide to how balance the ecosystem is amazing. I mean, like you wouldn't have had the restoration of like Yellowstone, for example, if you didn't have kind of healthy wolf populations reintroduced into that into that environment. And so, you know, even though yes, there are absolutely places where they will they, they will find their meat, um, but at the same time, the impacts they have in the overall system are so beneficial that we really want to see them restored. They're more likely to keep the deer population, oh, yeah. in check. Well, right in some cases, you have these you know these tensions where you know we do a lot. I mean, obviously, mm-hmm. a third of my members are sportsmen. And, you know, we have folks that are concerned about the impacts on elk populations because they want to be able to hunt the elk instead of having the, you know, well, the um, wolves, get to, the wolves get to them first. And my thing is it's all about balance, right? We want that healthy ecosystem. We have enough wolves, enough elk, and enough of everything to go around. Right. Um, now, I know one of the
2: issues that you've been working on um, recently is with uh, biofuels and beyond biofuels, I guess, right? With a new report out, tell us about yeah, that. Yeah.
1: So, um, you know, one of those you know, kind of horribly misguided government policies where we intended to, um, the promises at the time were to reduce air pollution, to you know, reduce our dependence on fossil fuels, and improve um, rural communities. And you know, we just came out with a, a report showing that there's about 2.8 million acres of land that has been converted to. Uh, ethanol crops, basically, um, across the West. This is a peer-reviewed study by some great scientists coming out of the major universities out of the Big Ten. Um, I guess the Big 12. Um, and and one of the things that they show is that there's a direct relationship between the amount of habitat that was converted, um, basically against the the law itself. I mean, the law said there could be no new kind of habitat conversion um, as part of the law in 2007, that the impact of water pollution, because of all the new nutrients going on to these soils that are not... Uh, particularly fertile. Um, in a lot of cases, so a lot of that, that nutrients are necessary to make the, the plants more productive. If you have a heavy rain, a lot of that winds up in the waterways, which lead to these huge algal blooms, and the amount of carbon pollution um, that's resulting from basically taking all these fields out of kind of sequestering carbon from the air as natural habitat, to then converting to the crops is the, is the equivalent of seven power plants, seven coal-fired coal power plants. And so I think one of our points is that you can't really be serious about climate long-term without reforming biofuel policies. And there's absolutely a place for biofuels, but we can do it a lot better than we're doing it right now.
2: So the, this big movement toward corn and, and particularly the, bio, the eth- ethanol, right, you, you think was environmentally in the wrong direction? It was, yeah. And I think, huh. look, like, I mean, we took, we took something
1: that requires— There was a
2: time when a candidate could not campaign in Iowa, right,
1: without coming out strong right. for— Ethanol. Yeah, right? I mean that was. I'm not sure that time is behind us yet. I mean, some really? folks are already kind of pledging their fealty. Yeah, and um,
2: it is so. I didn't. It's, this is a so whole new to me. It is so because they are converting um,
1: uh, habitat areas yeah, into of,
2: cropland. Exactly. So
1: a lot of like grasslands and wetlands and and, and forests. I mean, it's mainly it's mainly grasslands. And I think what we're seeing is that um, as commodity prices go up, if you use artificial kind of government policy to kind of prop up prices. Um, about nine percent of the land and in corn production went for fuel before the renewable fuel standard. It's forty percent now. The number just keeps taking up and up, and, whoa, so, whoa. And, and so it's screwing up. You know, commodity prices. I mean, you've had you know um, different input prices, impacts on different different markets. Um, you know, and but the interesting thing is the politics have have because I think most folks realize they'd like advanced biofuels that are cleaner. I mean, Ted Cruz, I don't use him as an example very often, but he pretty much opposed the ethanol mandate throughout his entire career, including during the caucuses last year, ended up winning the caucuses and beating President Trump there. Um, and so we're hoping the Democrats just say, like, at the end of the day, like, we just need better biofuels. And that means, you know, more sustainable inputs. And I still would love to see investment in these areas, but there's better ways to support these local communities without destroying wildlife habitat for a range of species. Well,
2: how can you reverse that without, um, without kind of wiping out the corn industry?
1: Yeah, I think a lot of it's about it's. So I mean, we worked really closely um, with all the all the farm groups on the farm bill, right? And there's a lot of places where you know, diversifying crops and having you know, better, more sustainable practices can actually have more value add. So they have higher prices for other commodities than they could for for corn. Um, there's also a, a range of other um, you know crops that could be much more beneficial to the to the environment and much more have much less kind of carbon pollution um, if they were willing to make kind of switches to other feedstocks. And well, so that's the kind of change you want to see.
2: Okay, so how? Um, how successful has the ethanol program been? Anyhow, I mean, what percentage of biofuels are being are we using today? Yeah. First question, and then, if we're not doing corn, then does that mean going back to fossil fuels or what?
1: Right. So um, right now, I mean, between you know, ten percent or so of the of the um, gasoline is coming from. It's coming from ethan- uh, from ethanol, and so it's you know, it's a pretty pretty sizable percentage. Um, Fifteen billion gallons a year is kind of the the rough ballpark, and so I mean it has been successful I, I, in making that you know, yeah. that input. I, I am so clueless on where do you get it. I never I I, I have n- don't remember ever seeing an ethanol gas pump anywhere. So you're you're buying it right now. I mean if you go to the you know the corner gas station around the corner, um, you know about ten percent of it's ethanol. It's blended into your it's blended into your fuel. So it's not oh, a it's separate blend. fuel. Oh, I it's a got blend. It. Yeah. Oh okay. Yeah. All and right. so part of it's for oxygen A to have, you know. Yeah. And and, huh. and, and right. but it's yeah, you're you're you've been buying it for years without no know, <laughs> without knowing it. Little did I know. Yeah. I was driving on corn. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I mean, this is not like you know, the kind of okay. the you know, the soy diesel, you know, kind of things you saw in California, yeah. you know, fifteen yeah. years ago where you have a separate right. pump and like right. everything That's else yeah, is. Just part of the system. Part of the system, okay.
2: And about ten percent today. Okay. Right? Yeah. Um, so if you get rid of that, does that mean you go back to 100% fossil fuels or? No, and I think, look, I mean, there's, and there's still you, a lot little... You used to phrase something like beyond yeah,
1: or beyond new fossil fuels yeah. or so new the, biofuels. Exactly. So the, there's a range of kind of advanced alternatives and you're still going to have some. Ethanol. Like what? So there's there's some of the technologies around different like switch grasses and things like that. There's a lot of a, a lot of market around algae based technologies that have a lot more energy kind of per unit. Um, so there's been research in all these areas. The problem is that by investing so heavily into kind of the last generation technology, we stifled innovation and kind of in the next generation technologies. And when the market went down in 2009, um, you saw a lot of the investors kind of pull back because if I can make a sure dollar investing in ethanol, why would I take the risk on kind of the next generation? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's where we want to see you know, more innovation because, I mean, 15 billion gallons of, <laughs> is a lot. You know, 2.8 million acres is, you know, it's two times the size of Delaware, right? I mean, it's, it's a massive <laughs> amount of, wow. of land that we've you know, taken out of taken out of habitat for, for this ever-insatiable government mandate. Right. Um, so is this something that
2: the uh, National Wildlife Federation, in addition uh, it, working with other organizations is going to be trying to uh, make a case for this among uh,
1: candidates who are yeah, I mean, look, I mean, we want, crisscrossing we, Iowa looking for a vote? <laughs> you know, I, I think we want to, I mean, it's funny you mentioned the United Steel workers. Leo Gerard's a good buddy of mine. And yeah. and you know, and I think we just want to make the case that saying, look, like we understand the pressures when you're in Iowa, but don't forget about, you know, the, Habitat that's being lost. In his case, don't forget about the folks that, you know, work at some of the other facilities that are impacted by this policy. So, you know, if you're, if you're don't, don't, you know, write off communities in, in like a Delaware or a New Jersey or a Pennsylvania because you're, you know, something for votes, trying to keep oxygen. um, trying to keep your campaign alive in, in Iowa. Um, and just saying there's all these unintended consequences that need to be thoughtful. And again, we just want to reform. We're not calling for repeal. We just want to see the program yeah. reformed and make sure we're not destroying, you know, good habitat in the process. And
2: what response are you getting from the agricultural
1: community, from farmers? It's interesting. So, I mean, the folks that directly benefit, you know, are you know, obviously concerned. They want to make sure there's some viable alternative because they're just trying to make – they're just trying to you know, put food on the table, literally. So, um, you know, and but folks outside of kind of the corn industry all think that this is one of the bigger, you know, kind of bigger boondoggles that's kind of distorted markets um, and really um, – just not had the desired impacts on a bunch of different fronts.
2: And just so we're clear, this is uh, this this is private lands, right? I mean, we're not talking about pu- public lands for the, so the most are part, we? yeah. For the, for for the, the most, most part, yeah. Right. 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 Um, one, maybe the biggest um, environmental uh, proposal that we've seen in a long time uh, goes under the rubric of the Green New yeah. Deal, right? Yeah. Um, which, of course, Mitch McConnell and Donald Trump and other uh, Republicans. Their only response to it is poking fun at it, right? Right. Trying to make a joke of it, right? right? Mitch McConnell said they're trying to get rid of cow farts. You know that was his enlightened response to it. Um, Well, he's from Kentucky. Uh, What What do you think about the Green New Deal? Is it realistic at all? Is it
1: high in the sky, or is it you know something that that's that's achievable? So I think the um, the science couldn't be more clear that we have to act immediately, right? I mean, like, we're, we're pretty far behind the eight ball right now. And this, you know, this idea that we have to take dramatic, you know, kind of action over the next 12 years is is the right, you know, kind of time frame. Um, I think the one place we've been trying to add kind of value into the conversation is saying this transition matters and it affects everybody differently. So, I mean, if somebody that's in a, you know, a West Virginia community that's heavily fossil fuel dependent is going to be going to feel the transition very differently than a place like in New York where, you know, a lot of the power is already coming from hydro or nuclear or renewables um, or natural gas. And so thinking through this transition piece is going to be incredibly important. At the same time, we have to think through the the way in which clean energy is manufactured, right? You know, if you want to build a wind turbine, you need you need iron, you need steel. If you want to build a solar panel, you need copper. If you want to build electric vehicles, you need lithium. These are all things that have to be mined. And so, you know, we're doing a lot of work with the unions right now, trying to make the case that there's actually more jobs in this transition. Now we have to make sure the jobs are well paying, because one of the things we're seeing right now is that, you know, a fossil fuel job might pay sixty or eighty thousand dollars a year some of the solar guys are paying like 12 to $15 an hour, which is, you know, twenty-four to $30,000 a year. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, you know, we have to make sure that workers in these states are going to be most affected. Often our states are already of high unemployment, right? I mean, the highest unemployment in the country right now is West Virginia and Alaska. Um, and so I just want to make sure we get the people piece right. The science piece is very well, and the technology is actually moving along. Um, but there's a lot of folks right now, they're just anxious about the future. And I think the election of the president was based on that fear.
2: But does it promise too much? I mean, it... Um... I mean, I love the idea. I love the sound of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it says that we should be fo- f- fossil fuel free, basically, in the next ten years. Right. Well, yeah. th- that's even beyond what California envisioned.
1: Right. I mean, I, look. I think the the technology the technology is always evolving quickly. I mean, we think about it: as how do you get to kind of net zero emissions? And it sounds technical, and it's, it is a slight difference, but. Look, if we reforest in a big way, we kind of restore a healthy system, you can actually suck a lot of carbon out of the atmosphere. If you're going to the energy efficiency, you could save another 20%, you, know, you know, Maybe even half that would be a huge wedge. And so you start thinking about these individual pieces, and you can get there. But there probably will be still some fossil fuels in the system. I think the question is, can you offset those either with different technologies? And you know, folks talk about carbon capture. They talk about air, direct air capture. I think nature is probably the best way to do a lot of that because a tree is much more efficient at getting... Carbon out of the atmosphere, but we're going to have to do all this stuff. And I think I was I was encouraged last week when Joe Manchin and, and Lisa Murkowski held right. a hearing together talking about it. So as opposed to just making fun out of it on the floor during you know kind of the leader's time, you know having a serious conversation. They, and they talked about this transition and making sure it makes sense. Um, it's a time for serious people, you know. And it's not a press conference with cheeseburgers. I mean, it's actually having a conversation. about how do we make it work for all the different states and have a 50 state solution? Um, because all 50 states, regardless of who they voted for, are facing the impacts right now.
2: Yeah. No, I'm glad you mentioned that. It didn't get enough attention, uh, Joe Manchin and Lisa Murkowski yeah. coming forth saying from our two states, oh. very energi- or energy dependent, right, that we think climate change is real mm. and we've got to act on it in a bipartisan fashion. Yeah, and take it, some bold action. So. I think
1: it's huge because I mean I mean look, I mean least I mean Senator Murkowski Murkowski's facing more impacts than almost anybody else given the, the erosion and the and the and the melting and Joe had flooding right. and all kinds of impacts. So this yeah. is a huge issue.
2: It's all part of the National Wildlife Federation, great environmental conservation organization. Uh, deserves your support. NWF.org, right? Yes, NWF. NWF.org with the leader under the leadership of Colin Namara. Hey Colin, thanks for all that you're doing on many, many fronts. Thanks for coming in this morning. Good. Thanks, Bill. Thanks for having me. Hey, when we come back, Elena Schneider joins us. Back to politics from Politico. This is The Bill it. Press Show. Hey, friends. Don't be a stranger. Keep up to date with all of The Bill Press Show happenings around the clock on social media. Here's how. You can follow us on Twitter at BP Show or on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash Bill Press Show and on YouTube, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. And remember, if you haven't already done so, make sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. And while you're there, please rate and review the show. That means a lot to us. And thanks so much for your support.
3: you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show,
1: live at YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show.
3: Okay, if you are
2: Apple or Google or Amazon, watch out. Here comes Elizabeth Warren with a sledgehammer, ready to break you up. Hello, everybody. Here we go. Monday, March 11, The Bill Press Show, live from our nation's capital, with all the news of the day, uh, from a progressive point of view, of course, that's who we are. Uh, your um, morning progressive look on the news of the day. Coming to you nationwide on the radio, on television, and online. And uh, look forward to hearing from you and your comments on the news of the day. Send us your comments on Twitter, of course, at BP Show. Uh, with lots and lots to talk about. Hope you had a good weekend, by the way. Uh, This is going to be a busy week. The House, the Senate, rather, will be voting this week on that resolution to nullify, uh, overturn, reverse, if you will, negate the president's um, uh, declaration of a national emergency. Uh, The Senate leadership, uh, Republican leadership, has acknowledged uh, that it will pass the Senate. There's no way that Mitch McConnell is going to be able to um, block that from happening. Uh, that's happened on Thursday. And in the meantime, the House sending over to the Senate a very sweeping measure called HR1, which deals with com- campaign finance reform, ethics reform, and voting rights reform, uh, Mitch McConnell says on that one. They're not even going to get a vote. So lots to catch up on. Send us your comments on Twitter uh, at BP show. We'll dive right in. Elena Schneider will be joining us from Politico. But first, this is the full court
3: press. All righty, just a couple of other stories making news. Yeah, let's yeah. go to Arizona, where at the Wildlife World Zoo Aquarium and Safari Park. Oh, yes,
2: uh huh. I know where you're going. Uh-huh. Yeah,
3: this story, I I love it and hate it. But there was a woman who wanted to get a picture. Of the jaguar, which you're allowed to take pictures of animals at the zoo. Except the problem is she wanted to get up close. Real close. Jumped over a barrier to get into the enclosure where the jaguar was. And the animal did what the animal does. It attacked the woman. Uh, She's going to be fine. Let's just be clear about that. Clawed
2: her through the fence. Clawed
3: her, cut her arm. uh, And she has a, a... fairly serious laceration, but she's going to be okay. She's just going to get stitches, right? Uh, But (coughs) this is just another reminder. Don't be dumb. Those barriers were there for a reason at the zoo. Don't climb over them.
2: I'll tell you the best part of the story. First of all, she went to the zoo yesterday and apologized. Yeah. As uh, she should have. As she should have. Saying, I was dumb. I should never have done that. What I loved was the zoo director who said, no, we are not going to euthanize that animal. Of course not. She, those barriers are there for a purpose. Yep. And if a person is dumb enough to cross that barrier, we're not going to kill the animal. Amen. Right. I think that's Good wonderful. Good for him. He's my hero.
3: I think that's great. Yeah, absolutely. Dumbass. Okay. <laughs>
2: Don't jump over the barrier.
3: Okay, so we have a problem, and on this planet, we have a lot of people and not a ton of food to feed everybody. Right? This is a problem. We're running out of more resources. So, uh, you, if you had crickets, people eat crickets, right, as a source of protein these days. I have that's never a eaten a cricket. Well, that's the thing. People are eating crickets. They put them into like power bars, energy bars, all this Not type of stuff. Not my power bar. No, no, no. Well, Purina is actually experimenting with new <laughs> proteins that they're putting into dog food, including <laughs> crickets and Asian carp. Now, the Asian carp is an invasive species, and we got that problem with a lot of. So they're. they're putting those in the dog food, and the crickets are much easier to raise and cheaper, more affordable than, say, you know, B, for other things they're putting in the dog food, so they're experimenting with cricket dog food. I know you don't have a dog, but would you give that to your dog?
2: Sure. I don't care. I have a problem with cricket dog food. I just have a problem with cricket Bill Press food. (laughs) That's
3: the problem. (laughs) That's the problem.
2: Uh-uh. Well, no.
3: we'll see if Purita rolls this out. But they, are they confirmed they are experimenting with it. This is the
2: Bill Press Show. Hey, hey, here we go. The Bill Press Show live from Washington, D.C., Yes, with the breaking story out of Mother Jones. (laughs) I love this story, man. You heard a couple of weeks ago about Robert Kraft, the head of the Patriots, being uh, nabbed in a sting operation down in Palm Beach, Florida, where uh, the, what was it, the uh, Asian, Orchid Asian Spa or whatever, uh, accused of uh, of taking part in uh, illegal sex trade. Uh, at this illegal activities, at this, uh, at this spa. It turns out, according to Mother Jones, that the owner of that spa, a woman by the name of Cindy Yang, uh, is a frequent uh, guest uh, at Mar-a-Lago. Not only that, she owned a little business, uh, the mission of which was to take Chinese businessmen visiting the United States, taking them to Mar-a-Lago to hang out with the president of the United States. She was selling access to the president for these China's businessmen uh, maybe before or after they had visited her spa. Who knows? Watch that story. It's going to get more attention. Uh, and one little uh, tidbit here, which we didn't have, didn't have a chance to in the last hour, uh, is, is that a little um, confusion over whether or not Donald Trump called Tim Cook, the CEO of Apple, Tim Apple. Now, that was reported... Tim Cook thought that was very funny, and he put out a tweet basically saying, I'm proud to be known as Tim Apple. Well, the president, again, fake news, fake news, accused the media of uh, not quoting him directly. He said, Actually, what I said was Tim Cook Apple. And then the media said, I said Tim Apple. Donald Trump says, I didn't say that. I said Tim Cook Apple let's go to the video
1: do we appreciate it very much tim apple
2: let's hear it again
3: do we appreciate it very much tim apple (laughs) we report you decide
2: there it is seems to me that he says tim apple i think it's also funny tim apple it's like do you think um jeff zuckerberg would like to be called jeff facebook i'm not sure at any rate Elena Schneider joins us from Politico. Hi, Elena. How are you? I'm
4: good, Bill. How are you doing?
2: Okay. Um, Tim Apple. There he is, right? What's wrong with that? That's kind of funny. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 2020, you've been on the road?
4: I've been on the road. We'll be on the road again. So, yeah, the the, the season has already started.
2: Did you think it would start this early?
4: Uh, you know, yes, actually. I think even all the way back to the Women's March back in 2017, you knew that, that people were not going to sit on the sidelines long and in trying to to voice their displeasure. Uh, I think for all of our uh, mental health, it's a little too bad that we didn't get a little more of a break between the two, but we knew it was coming fast.
2: So uh, I did a little count last night uh, working on a column for today um, where I came up with 14 candidates so far. Does that sounds about right? square with you? Yep, right? that sounds right. And among those, who are those that might also I, – I think we haven't seen the final list yet, I guess is what I'm saying. No, I don't think so. Among those waiting in the wings, who do you think uh, is going to emerge? Who, who else might be joining?
4: I think last week's evidence between uh, Senator Brown deciding that he wasn't going to get in, Mike Bloomberg, former New York City mayor, deciding to get in, those were all not pretty – Not right. Exactly, yeah. not to get in. Those were all very strong signals that it looked like – Joe Biden is going to get into this race um, from off the record conversations that I've been having. That certainly seems to be the takeaway from a lot of people in and around both those campaigns was that there was a concern that if Joe Biden got in, um, there
2: would not be there would
4: a, not be a path for them. A
2: path for them.
4: Exactly. So I think uh, Joe Biden is still very much the sort of 900 pound gorilla in the room. But Beto O'Rourke, look, I mean, he's another one who he was in Austin just this weekend, um, again, addressing questions about whether he would run. And, you know, look, I don't cover Beto, so I have maybe a little less insight into that one. But but my understanding from my colleagues is that he looks prepared to run if, she, if he chooses to. Well,
2: he has told people that I find it a little confusing with Beto. He has told people he's made up his mind. But he won't say whether it's to run or not to run. If he's made up his mind not to run, why is he still out there doing all these public appearances?
4: I, great television. Building a buzz for whatever future endeavor he might have if it's not running for president. I mean, I would imagine that given... I think you're you're making the right point in that why, why make a big deal out of this if you're not doing it? I think that that then points s- to he'll probably
2: do it. I'm sorry. He's also said that he's not going to run for Senate. Right. Against John Cornyn, right. right? Right. So it's not for another Senate race. Right and it's unlikely that's for another congressional race. I mean, I, he,
4: somebody's already replaced him there. He doesn't have a congressional seat to go back to anymore.
2: That's right. He so. to, <laughs> he'd
4: have to knock out a, a Latina, so I, I highly doubt that he would go back and go do that.
2: Right. Or move to another district or something like that, right? Yeah. So it just it, it's a little strange if he doesn't. Um Terry McAuliffe? Is there room for McAuliffe if Biden is in?
4: I think he falls into the category of um, straight white men whose path gets more complicated by having Biden in the race. Um, I think that there's a sense of deference, of sort of waiting for the vice president to make his decision. Um, And again, I think the signals last week pointed to it would come sooner rather than later. And I, I think Terry McAuliffe falls into that category. Look, I could be wrong. There is a time where... At, at, at a certain point, the more people who get in, the greater your chances are potentially of, of going forward. So he might still see it as a possibility, but I think I'd still put him in the category of people whose chances um, get slimmer by having Joe Biden in the race.
2: Would you put Steve Bullock in the same category?
4: Uh, No, I don't think I would. I think Steve Bullock is somebody who... Um, you know, we reported last week, we got the scoop, a uh, colleague of mine, uh, that Jen Ritter, who ran Jared Polis's campaign in 2018. She's a really well-liked um, Democratic veteran operative. She was hired by Big Skies PAC, which is sort of the group aligned with Steve Bullock. And we know, we've gotten very clear signals from him and his team that they need to wait until the legislative session in Montana ends, which ends in April. And I think the expectations of the decision will come after that. But hiring Jen Ritter is a pretty strong sign that you're planning on getting into this race. So I think that he's somebody who, um, in part because he's a governor, in part from he's you know he's from out west, he feels like he represents maybe a different lane than than somebody like Terry McAuliffe or Sherrod Brown uh, might see for themselves.
2: Right. So um, for the moment, the only person that we have from, um, well, I guess two from so-called flyover country, right are Pete Buttigieg and Amy, Amy Klobuchar.
4: Klobuchar. Mm-hmm. That's right. So
2: maybe Montana well, falls that John, category. Jo- and
4: John Hickenlooper as well from Colorado.
2: Right. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> right. Although he didn't do himself a lot of any favors last week. I no,
4: think. he's had a, a little bit more of a bumpy rollout. Um, but, you know, I think that that also can be expected. And that's also a benefit of having 14 people in the race is that even a blip that you might have People move on to the sort of the next story, the next split that some other candidate has. Um, so I think we're going to see a little bit of, of people warming up to that role, and it takes time. Um, I don't think running for president is an easy adjustment to make. Um, sure. But yeah, no that was a not being able to call yourself a capitalist or not really having an answer, answer to that is, is a little problematic, given that he owns businesses.
2: Uh, of the 14, who do you think um, uh, from your reporting leads the pack so far? And it can <sighs> be more than one.
4: I mean, it sort of depends on, on how you how you frame – I mean, what, what sort of litmus test. I mean, I think in name recognition, Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders certainly are still holding –
2: Joe's not in yet. Fair, okay. 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 So are you
4: saying just to the people who are in? Yeah,
2: yeah.
4: Then I would take it sort of as a staff organizational structure – um Elizabeth certainly,
2: to your point. right Name ID Bernie Sanders. Name ID
4: exactly. Matters a huge amount and Bernie Sanders is someone who has maintained that and and certainly the number that he was able to raise 10 million over a week or something like that. A huge chunk of those were new donors. That's a huge huge sign that he is going to be a massive force in this race. And um so I think Bernie Sanders has to be amongst the top one or two three up there in part because of that. Uh, Elizabeth Warren has incredibly strong staff. That's not everything. Um, And if you'll remember, Scott Walker hired a lot of really good people right at the early outset, and it sort of grew too quickly, too fast, and then he had to pull out right away. Um, I'm not saying that's happening with Warren, but, you know, staff isn't necessarily everything, but she certainly has a very strong staff. And, look, I think Kamala in a lot of ways, got a lot of the media attention, a lot of sort of the shine and excitement around somebody that people weren't as familiar with. I mean, Mm -hmm. people are more familiar with Sanders and Warren over the last couple of years. They're much Mm -hmm. longer sort of national figures. And she came out, I think, in a really splashy, um, exciting way for Democratic voters. So I think she's somebody who has had some of the best rollouts Mm -hmm. of any of the candidates. So, look, it's a tough question (laughs) to sort of this far out gauge it. But I think those three right now seem to be having a really good moment.
2: No. Yeah. Uh, Now I mentioned earlier. um, I I think you can break them down. Uh, I sort of did uh, in working on this column on the already serious candidates, those who could potentially become the more serious candidates, and then those who are just basically along for the ride. Who who are your
4: along for the ride list?
2: Well, or is this? Are
4: we saving this for the column? No.
2: Well, no. I mean, (laughs) but but of among the three. Definitely, right off the bat, serious. Yep. I think are certainly Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren and Kamala Harris. Right. You know, my category for the next the next group down, potential, um, not yet. I think up there in the t- in the top ranks, but mm-hmm. could be, get there. Would be Amy Klobuchar, the, the senators Amy Klobuchar, Kirsten Gillibrand, Cory Booker, but also I think Jay Inslee mm-hmm. and Pete Buttigieg, even. Mm-hmm. and maybe Castro too. I, I think I'd put Castro up there among the. You're wasting your time and hours. Maybe you know would be Marianne Williamson mm-hmm. and uh, I think John Hickenlooper, who are the others. John Delaney, Tulsi Gabbard, uh, and sadly Andrew Yang, whom we like, but mm-hmm. he's been here in the studio with us, but yeah. just doesn't have the organization. Right, right. right. Uh, and then you know we got as we pointed out these other four who are who are kind of coming in. Right. But uh, but it's already there's already a lot going on now. Back to these front runners where Elizabeth Warren was down a South South by Southwest this weekend. Um, and um, she has certainly emerged as a candidate with big, bold ideas, and she keeps throwing them out there, right? Universal child care, the tax on the wealthiest of Americans. Uh, this one now is breaking up the big, hot, big tech companies, which she took to the big tech, conference Conference this weekend (laughs) in Austin. Here she is.
4: That opportunity to do what you do best, to come up with a great idea, to work your heart out, to make it happen, to be able to compete on a level playing field is taken away by these platform giants.
2: So she's sort of become the the leading almost policy nerd, right, in this race.
4: Yeah, strikingly, not a lot of people have actually come up with their own stuff. I mean, I think that Corey Booker maybe threw out a couple ideas right before he launched, but other than Warren, nobody really has come out. with as many bold policy progressive prescriptions. I think Bernie Sanders also came out with um, some tax ideas around the time that she came out with her wealth tax. But look, she's been leading the charge on us, and that's, I think, the place that she feels comfortable and where she wants to be. She wants to be driving the conversation around policy, and she feels like that's what's going to be setting her apart in this race, apart from just simply being a woman, being a senator, but being the person who's going to be at the forefront of these sort of populist uh, policy issues and trying to take that crown away from Bernie Sanders. It's,
3: it's really interesting because Bernie. One of Bernie's messages is uh, all of these candidates are running on ideas that I ran on mm-hmm. in, in 2016, which is which is true, right? By the way, that is true. But they're gone. She has gone beyond that. Well, that's what I'm saying. That's what I'm trying to say. Yeah. So, yeah. like, it's. You, to beat that narrative that Bernie Sanders has put out there, you've got to rise above this whole idea that I'm just running on Bernie Sanders' old ideas. Right? Which she absolutely gets. Mm-hmm. And she's taking it farther.
2: And she came out and endorsed the Green New Deal. Yeah. She came out very, so did Bernie, very critical of the hate, I hate hate <laughs> resolution right. last week. Um, and I think that's who she is, right? She's a, She's serious, a policy wonk, yeah. serious policy person. Mm-hmm. And uh, she believes that the American people are ready for that. And I, I do, too, in, in, in the sense that I think for, they're looking for candidates to come up with, and the Congress, to, to do more than renaming post offices, right? I mean, we're there to do big things, I think, is what her message is. And here are some of the big things we can do whether they're attainable in the first year or the second year or at all, at least... She wants to get the ideas out there.
4: And I think regardless of how far Senator Warren goes in this race, part of what she wants to do is shape the conversation. And I think that regardless of how far she makes it, if she you know makes it a year or not, she's already done that in, in big ways. And I think that they um, – obviously, I think the goal is to be president. I don't think the goal is just to simply save the, save the, shape the conversation, but I think that this is also a, a side benefit of being out there and talking on the campaign trail.
2: Uh, right. We did mention among my list of those who um, – I don't think are serious, whatever or ever become that uh, John Hickenlooper, for, former governor of Colorado, who had a, an unfortunate exchange last week with uh, Joe Scarborough on Morning Joe, where the question basically was, "Are you a capitalist
3: or a are socialist?" You, uh, you,
2: has a hard time answering
3: it. Are you concerned about some factions of your party embracing socialism? <laughs> well, I think there's.
1: The Democratic Party is a big tent, uh, and that's one of the things I've always loved about the Democratic Party is there are all kinds of ideas. You know, I look at my experiences and, and, and where I've tried to make a difference, and it really is getting people together, getting them to lay down their weapons, and then getting stuff done. And the labels, right. I think most Democrats don't care as much about the labels. Don't well, would you, call yourself, <laughs> would you call yourself a proud capitalist? Oh, I don't know. You know, again, the labels, I'm not sure uh, any of them fit.
2: So you're either ready for prime time or you're not. You know, I think that was not his best moment. He's a good guy and he was a no, good governor. No, d-
4: definitely not his best moment, especially coming from somebody who owned a whole slew of brew pubs and yeah, who is a yeah. capitalist. You
2: know, right. made his
4: name by being a businessman, and that's part and of has his made a lot of money. You and know, and, for, and that's part and, of so. his selling point. I would argue is that he is somebody who 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 is out there talking about how he can convene people, convene groups of people teams get things done in part because of that business and executive experience and so to fumble that was pretty bad and i think that there was a lot of concern around people who supported him when they watched that and said oof that was a really bad moment right
2: so at the same time you had elizabeth warren at almost the same day right saying she wants to break up these big companies and yet saying this was good for capitalism because it provides more competition Right, so she was not running away, even right. even though she was saying things that people could accuse of being socialist. Right, she was selling it as and talking about it, which I think correctly, as a benefit, you know, making saving capitalism, if you will. Well, I think she sort of more tried. Competition. I think
4: she's tried to rebrand it as I think she called herself I think it was an accountable capitalist or something like that. She hadn't. Add, add an adjective to sort of uh, explain a bit as to, because she's not trying to be Bernie Sanders. She isn't a socialist. She isn't um, Ocasio-Cortez saying throw the whole system out, but just simply saying here are some ways that we can improve on it. So that is a difference that she has with Bernie. Even if she's coming out with all these bold ideas, it is still fundamentally different than what he is pitching.
2: Right. Uh, and where Joe where, um, Scarborough was heading is there is this narrative now that uh, while Donald Trump uh, is vulnerable uh, and people may be ready for change, that the Democrats could blow it by going too far to the left. Um, What do they mean by that? And do you think that's a real risk?
4: That's a good question. I look at it as early and the stickiness of an issue, say, Ilhan Omar's recent comments um, of you know anti-Semitic comments, or uh, this question of socialism and branding everything as socialist. Um, are we still going to be talking about it in a year? Maybe we will be, especially on the socialist front. But I think that it's something that uh, there are a lot of things that people have tried to brand as socialist that are still fundamentally popular based on polling. So I don't know if 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 Americans are going to necessarily believe that rebranding all these ideas as socialists is, is believable. Um, and, and, I th- and we
2: have to remember, I mean, they called Bill Clinton a socialist. They called Hillary a socialist. They called Barack Obama a socialist. They called Joe Biden a socialist. Well, it is I different mean, when
4: you calling yourself a socialist, however, a democratic socialist. Yes. But nonetheless, yeah, claiming right. that title is very different than saying that's yeah. absurd. Let's move on. Um, so I think that there is a bit more meat on the bone here to get at for Republicans. And um, certainly it is going to be concerning for those Democrats who are running in those red to blue districts um, where they need to get independents and moderates to support them. It is going to be potentially an issue for some of them. But for uh, for the presidency, I don't know if it's going to rise to – look, I think it also just depends on who the nominee is. If it's Bernie, it's completely different than if it was Kamala.
2: Right. And let's remember, however, right, that Bernie, as a Democratic Socialist, right – won 21 primaries, got 13 million votes, and raised $250 million.
4: Right. Uh,
2: as a Democratic socialist, <laughs> right? So uh, you, 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 I think what you're getting at is right, Is right that depending on the policies that they're talking about, I mean, Bernie, Bernie's talking about Medicare for All. Most people do not see, particularly younger people today, do not see Medicare for All or a $15 minimum wage or even a... Tax on the wealthy, right? As socialism, they just see it as fundamentally good public policy. It's certainly not the socialism of the Marxist socialism of owning all means of production, right? That we're talking about today. So it's interesting to see. I, I think the, the that the um, it's almost a little Peter and the Wolf, you know. The boy they, who cried wolf. The yeah. The boy who cried yeah, you know, mm-hmm. boy who cried wolf, right. <laughs> mixing them up there, <laughs> uh, uh, in terms that they use it so much for so many things that it could lose its, the, the, the phrase could lose its impact. Possibly. Um, um, and again, it also depends on who the messenger is. Mm-hmm. I think you point out. So, um, I'm sure you saw, I think it was a CNN poll, maybe it's poli- I, I read it on Politico, but it might have been CNN, about um, the, the Iowa caucus, the latest, Democrats in the Iowa caucus, the latest is, Joe Biden, 27, Bernie, 25, Elizabeth Warren, third place, nine, Mm -hmm. I believe, and Kamala Harris, seven mean anything does that mean anything today? i think that was
4: the new des moines register poll oh okay i believe yeah. that came I it came out this weekend Politico, yeah, we, yeah we we certainly wrote it up but uh but they set the standard for unbelievable polling out of iowa they do always have um look i think and look i i uh this is um i don't have it in front of me but my understand my memory is is that warren fell a little bit out of that poll that she had done performed better i think in the last poll which was back in december mm-hmm. um
2: Beto had fallen
4: Beto had he, also fallen a yeah. touch um, and, and that sort of Biden and Bernie were holding steady at sort of their leading mm-hmm. number one and number two positions. I mean, look, I, I think that uh, Iowa, I mean, excuse me, that um, uh, Natasha Karecki, who wrote up that poll, poll pointed out that um, that Hillary Clinton was like at 50 percent in Iowa, crushing Bernie Sanders at this point in the Des Moines Register poll and, uh, and that Scott Walker was leading it in the Republican poll at this time. Um, so there is there is an element of of its capturing a moment in time that may not necessarily forecast for everyone what's going to happen in the future. But it helps to know that Warren, although she's been out there since January 31st, hasn't maybe gained as much traction as she would hope and hasn't been able to necessarily chip away at Bernie Sanders's edge, and that's got to be concerning for their folks. Um, I'm sure Kamala feels good about sort of the position that she's holding steady in, and and um, and maybe Beto should take note that that if he continues to sort of dither in his non-running, you know, position, people are going to stop supporting him. Um, but look, I think all of these are still uh, fluid. It's still early, and um, it, it sort of just gives us a snapshot in time that doesn't necessarily tell us where we're going.
2: Mm-hmm. One thing, though, one thing about the other story about Iowa that I saw last week, which I found encouraging, and I'm wondering if you've seen this in your reporting, certainly in 2018, the energy, the excitement, the enthusiasm was on the Democratic side. Right. It was their first chance, people saw, uh, uh, to really respond to Trump. As you mentioned, this whole thing started with the Women's March, right? Right. And, And so we had in 2018... More Democrats running for office than ever before, for more offices, more Democrats, particularly Democratic women elected, not only 40 members of the Congress, seven governors, I think, mm-hmm. hundreds of state legislators. Um, that excitement, enthusiasm hasn't gone away, has it?
4: I don't, in terms of support. In terms
2: of support for de- among Democrats. Uh, like uh, The reason I say that is I saw the crowds in Iowa right. even this early. Are like bigger than ever before for almost everybody.
4: Well, I had a county chairman who joked with me when we were sort of commenting on on uh, everyone, on so many crowds coming out and supporting people. He said, Well, this is why you actually have to wait until the second or third trip to Iowa to actually know how people feel about someone. Because at <laughs> well, this point, true. if you're running yeah. for president, you are going to attract a crowd. It doesn't matter who you are. Yeah. Michael yeah. Bennett isn't even running for president yet, and yet he's there and he's getting people to show up and he's got, you know, so it's, 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 uh, People are really deeply excited in Iowa and across the country. Democratic primary electorate, you know, uh, not to throw a religious reference so early in the morning, but sort of the 2018 was the, you know, feast, you know, taste of the feast of the foretaste of the feast to come. So this idea of, like, we've got this little, you know, taste of what... to uh, send a message to the president but we really know what actually is going to truly send that message and that's kicking him out in 2020 and i don't think that anyone who is uh, a realistic would expect that that energy to necessarily diminish quite yet Um, particularly when there's so much energy and excitement about picking the person who it's going to be i think that when some of this goes negative when inevitably some of these candidates start going after each other attacking each other on debate stage we could then see a bit of a dip because then it goes from sort of generally people just being excited about running and lots of people running and, and, and trying mm-hmm. to take on the president. All of a sudden it becomes sort of internal family issues. And I think that that's where we might see a dip in that enthusiasm. But, again, I don't think that that's going to be sustained or sticky. It's just a, a factor of, of, of a primary yeah. bound for being but for a little the critical. Time, for the
2: time being, we've seen that Bernie is getting the biggest crowds ever, right, uh, even maybe bigger than he got. In, uh, in 2016. Certain, certainly but
4: initially. <laughs>
2: initially, yeah, yeah, right. But for for now, again, initially, mm-hmm. as you say, anybody. Cory Booker's been getting big crowds. Right. John Jay Inslee was getting big crowds, right? And and not as big as Bernie, but still bigger than people remember for a second-tier candidate, yeah, absolutely. Uh, if you will. And I, I do have to point out that this is, I think, the third time in the last hour and a half, that the name Michael Bennett uh, (laughs) has come up, not from me, but from other people. So that's just what we need, one more senator running for president, right? You think he's going to? I think he is. There we go. God. (laughs) Jeez. Well, then the question becomes, how big is the debate stage going to have to be well, we're going to find out because Hoshi Inahosa Inos- from the Democratic National Committee joins us next uh, with all the latest on the debate, uh, the negotiations, and uh, preparations. So, Elena, thanks for your good work and uh, have fun out there on the trail. Thanks
4: so much for having yeah, me.
2: When you're back in town, come back and see us, and we'll bring do. us up to date. Okay. <laughs> you can follow Elena, of course, at Politico, politico.com. And we hear from the DNC next here on The Bill
3: Press Show. Don't go away. Quick break. We'll be right back. Take The Bill Press Show anywhere you go. Download our free podcast. Search for The Bill Press Show on iTunes and catch the highlights from every show. Monday, March 11. Here we go. The Bill Press
2: Show wrapping up here this Monday edition online, on the radio, and on television coast-to-coast, starting out from our studio here on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C., where we're brought to you today in part by the United Food and Commercial Workers Union. Good men and women of the UFCW under President Mark Perone. Uh, They are a hardworking American union family that feeds, serves, and provides for all of Americans' hardworking families at uh, our great retail grocery chains all across the country. Uh, So uh, salute them, thank them for uh, when you're checking out for the good work that they do and for their support of the uh, Bill Press show. Uh, Join me in welcoming to the studio here to get all the latest on uh, all the negotiations regarding particularly the Democratic debates coming up, the first one in June of this year. Soshi Inohosa is the Communications director for the DNC it's Always good to see you. Good Thanks to see for coming you. Of in. How about it? So um uh, my count is fourteen Democrats. So I was just talking with Elena Schneider on that. Uh, that is that about your count too, already announced or uh
0: there are announcer exploratory committee, yeah. either about that or a little bit more. There are actually, I don't know if um, your listeners know this, but there are hundreds of candidates who've actually filed Oh, um oh. already and that happens every yeah. cycle oh, uh-huh. and especially this cycle but um in terms of candidates who are bona fide candidates al- former elected officials those that you see the senators that have yeah. announced the governors who have announced have served our party for a long time um those are about a, a little more than a dozen
2: with uh with a, a four or five more who might get uh who might get in mm-hmm. not all of them but okay so Um, How many of them have qualified for the debate stage as of yet? Do you know?
0: We won't know that until about two weeks before the debate. The first one
2: is, do you have a date yet?
0: The first one will be in June. We don't have an exact date. One of the things that we're working on with NBC right now, who has the first debate, is figuring out a location. And Uh one thing that is very important here, Bill, is that this is the first time that you have had a network cable and Spanish – um, partnership um, view or carry the debate on all three. And mm. that it hasn't happened for either party. And not only that, on two consecutive primetime weeknights. So that's huge for the Democratic Party right now. So
2: it'll be NBC, MSNBC, and Univision. And Telemundo. Telemundo, yes. sorry. Um, all three will carry it live.
0: All three will carry it two live. Two nights in a row. Two nights of Whoa, weeknight prime time, and so yeah, that not, is huge. Not that's,
2: weekends. We're not talking Sunday night anymore. No, really.
0: we're talking maximum yeah. viewership. We're not, and we're also <coughs> talking about one of these is a network. It's really yeah, hard, yeah, as you know, yeah, to yeah. get prime time on a network, and especially two consecutive nights. They're bumping their regular, you know. Whether whatever the show is that all of us watch at night, but it is um, it's something that will be huge for Democrats. And frankly, um, as I'm sure Donald, it'll get under Donald Trump's skin because, you know, how much he loves television and how much he watches for some of this stuff and ratings and all of that stuff. So we expect very large viewership when it comes to yeah. this.
2: And who knows, his name might come up in the debate. <laughs> <laughs>
0: it could come up. But we are, and qualification, yeah. we'll look at qualification two weeks before. But the two oh, things that we are looking at. Okay. Two
2: weeks before. Two weeks before. Now, again, so it, it'll be in June, but you don't have dates yet.
0: No, right? those will be announced very soon. And they
2: will be back to back.
0: They will be back to back. Okay, so. And
2: who's going to be on stage? No. So
0: there will be up to 20 candidates 10 each night and what you will have is um no gr- more than 20. No more than 20, 10 mm-hmm. each night. That will be the largest debate that we have ever had. It
2: looks like it'll be in either less party. Than, it looks like it'll be less than 20.
0: Potentially. well um, we wanted yeah. to make sure that we are as inclusive as uh-huh. possible okay. and also preparing for such a large field. Yeah. so 10 each night you have two ways that you can qualify to get on the debate stage. One is if you pull at 1% in three different polls, and those are both national and local polls. As you saw, Des Moines Register had their poll. There are other local polls that will come out throughout the course of this presidential campaign. Do
2: you choose the polls?
0: We have have worked out a number of polls, about a dozen polls with NBC, with our partner network.
2: So if you're number one percent in any one of those three in three in, in three in, in three sorry. of the polls in, in, any three of those yes 10 or of so. the ten or so you would um at least meet one qualification
0: meet one qualification you correct
2: to, you have to meet one or both qualifications
0: you at least need to meet one qualification. At least one,
2: so you don't need to do both.
0: Correct. Okay. So if you are not polling at 1%, yeah. and this was the this is what we looked at. We wanted to be as inclusive as possible knowing that when you have 20 people in a field, it is hard to get at 1%, right? You have it it's very difficult because you have so <laughs> many candidates. And so we also have a qualification mechanism that is Grassroots fundraising. And the way that that works is if you have um, 65,000 donors in 20 states, Mm -hmm. then you can qualify for the grassroots fundraising threshold. So right now you see a number of candidates who are out there fundraising and trying to build that grassroots um, infrastructure. And why this is important is because you've seen our party. Our party is, and you've seen candidates out there campaigning and you see the grassroots enthusiasm that's out there more than ever. And so we feel that in order to build a strong party and to beat Donald Trump, whoever our nominee will be will need to have that strong grassroots fundraising fundraising infrastructure. It shows enthusiasm behind your campaign.
2: right. Uh, is there a minimum that you would have to raise uh, from these 65,000 Let's say you got 65,000 people. In 20 states to give you a buck, All right? Okay, you got sixty-five thousand dollars. That doesn't get you very far. That, Did that get you on stage?
0: That's right. Well, and the other thing that we wanted to make sure is that you don't aren't you aren't fundraising just from one state either, right? You yeah, know, it's right. easy to get one.
2: Twenty states. Yeah,
0: twenty states. Yeah, and so that's also a minimum of two hundred donations uh-huh. in each of these states.
2: Oh, I see. Um, uh huh.
0: So that so we are this is something that we worked on and I'm not sure if you're familiar with Act Blue, but yes, we yes. worked closely with Act Blue to determine this threshold because we believe and and they also understand they are the arm you know they understand grassroots fundraising and so they looked at some research and did some of the math and what is you know looked at to see what is not only, it might be difficult to get on stage. It's not an easy number by any means. You have to have an infrastructure, but it's also doable.
2: Mm-hmm. So, uh, I know Act Blue. I gave them a lot of money last time, <laughs> so <laughs> uh, and they are a wonderful uh, vehicle for giving contributions to Democratic candidates across the board. They yes, were, they helped just about every Democrat's campaign. They, know, they definitely. That's yeah. a,
0: a lot of campaigns used to to mm-hmm. grassroots fundraise.
2: Right. So so there's no dollar you could
0: raise 3 dollars you could raise 1 dollar whatever right. it is and that's there's, the beauty about there's no grassroots total fundraising no
2: dollar minimum or anything that you would
0: have to Correct say, right? correct And right now you see someone like Pete Buttigieg, who was just fundraising. I just saw a video. He was at South by Southwest. He was Mm -hmm. fundraising last night. And he said, you know, donate $3 to my campaign so I can get on the debate stage. So we're already seeing candidates use this as a mechanism in order to grow enthusiasm in their campaigns, but also to make it to the debate stage, which we haven't seen before. It is actually sort of a new way that we see our party going, because it's not just about polling. We understand that there are candidates out there that are loved, you know, and we want to make sure that our country hears from them. No,
2: I think that's great. Uh, Andrew Yang um, uh, is a candidate for president. He's been in studio with us and he is working on this grassroots fundraising. He insists he's one percent in the polls which I doubt, but he's, he's definitely working on the grassroots fundraising thing in order to qualify. So let's say you end up with, uh, pick a number, 15, right, mm-hmm. or uh, even number 16. So you got eight and eight. How do you decide who appears the first night and who appears the second
0: night? That's a really good question. So one of the things, and you'll remember this. You have from, a good
2: answer. I,
0: <laughs> I, we've thought about this a lot. That's what I will tell you. Is you remember the Republican debates? They oh, were a yeah, disaster.
2: No. No, exactly <laughs> because you had the heavy hitters, and then I mean the varsity and the JV, right? Yes. Now yes. I would hope that. That's not going to be the case with the DNC.
0: That won't be the case. We heard from a lot of people and just strategists and people within the Democratic Party saying, please don't do what the Republicans did. What ended up happening is that if you weren't on the varsity stage, it was detrimental to your campaign. Well, yeah. it, you likely your campaign was basically over. Nobody and so, watched. No, as I recall,
2: the only person who ever bounced up from one to the other was Carly Fiorina.
0: Yes. Right. Yes. And I remember that was a big controversy because they wouldn't let her on the stage. And, you know, and that was when they went from two nights to one night. That was also she was the only woman who was running. They wouldn't let her on. And so it was it was a lot of drama for the Republican Party. But also, I think that, you know, a lot of campaigns will tell you that that was something that was really stressful is figuring out whether they're going to make that that first tier so what we're doing is we're going to select the candidates at random and we'll be doing this with the network so that you don't have the people who are polling at the top you know five people or eight people as you said polling in some of these polls on one stage and then have the rest of also another. on the other no correct and so that is why you know that's exactly why we're doing this and so it w- really will be at random we won't know who will be on each stage and I think it'll make it not only fun but interesting right because that we're uh, doing this for the second debate as well.
2: No 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 I think that's great I mean I really do uh, because for and I also think from the network's point of view it's great there should be a mix of heavy hitters and uh, you know promising or potential candidates on yes. each stage yes. It would be better for the network, for example, right, if Elizabeth Warren were on the first night or Kamala Harris the first night and Bernie Sanders on the second night, right? I mean, you don't want all your big names or Joe Joe Biden. If you have Joe Biden, Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders on the first night, nobody's going to watch the second night.
0: Well, you also have it from a network (laughs) point of view. uh, Yeah,
2: I would want some superstars, you know, both nights. You know? Well, the
0: and, other thing is that you have and it's
2: fair that way too. It
0: is fair, and it will also change from June and July, which is also great because you won't just have the top eight people who polling well on both on a stage both oh, times. Oh, I see. Right, yeah, right. So right. it'll mix it up a little bit. So your stage is going to look very different from June than what it's going to look like in July.
2: So July is the second one, huh? Yes. Whoa, get ready. Yeah, yeah. How many <laughs> this year?
0: We'll have six this year and six in 2020. And we will have one every month except for August, where um, that is when our DNC meeting will be. And so we're taking August off when it comes to debates. But other than that, we will June, have one every July, month. July, September, September,
2: October, November. December. D- December, then, Jan- then Sixth. Then, uh-huh. Wow. Okay. I'm not sure we're ready for all these. I'm just like bracing
3: myself for all of this, you know? (laughs) Well, eventually. It's exciting, but it's also. It is exciting. Eventually, I
2: I, I would think by the end of the year, you'll get down to one night. I mean, there won't be enough candidates for two nights.
0: Yeah, that's something that we're looking at. And you eventually have to go one night, not only because. It is your your field starts to shrink. Um, but you also the networks won't necessarily give you two consecutive nights throughout yeah. the entire time. Right. right? And so okay. that's something that we'll be talking to them. All about. right.
2: So NBC has the first one in July in June. Who has a July debate?
0: CNN. We'll CNN have this is July. July. Yes. Okay. And then we haven't determined the rest of the partners. From
2: OK. Here. Uh, OK. Uh, so July. August is August Fox News.
0: That oh Fox boy. News debate, that won't happen. Um, it,
2: what? <laughs> it, we Okay, when, no. Yeah. so tell us about the decision to uh, say, Fox, you are not going to get any one of the debates.
0: So I'm sure you read the New Yorker piece that broke this last week that basically talked about the cozy relationship. By Jane
2: Mayer. Yes. And if you haven't read it, it's a must read in last week's New Yorker. Yes, yes.
0: last week's New Yorker. It was very interesting because I think a lot of us knew that the cozy but did relationship— did you make your
2: decision based on the, uh, the New Yorker piece?
0: That was a large part of our decision was that New Yorker piece. And a lot of what we saw in that piece is we knew that there was a cozy relationship. We've seen—you see the coverage every day on Fox. But it, a lot of it comes from the opinion parts of Fox. Now, you do have very respectable— Um, reporters on Fox like Chris Wallace and who is not like the rest of the network but at the same time one of the things is they brought a proposal to the DNC and um, we were looking at that proposal but once we saw what was happening in the New Yorker and specifically not only how Donald Trump was given a question or was given a tip about a question about when it came to a debate. But then also hit the level of control that Donald Trump has on the network is just from a journalistic point of view is not acceptable. And so there came a point where we determined that Fox News would was not capable of hosting an a fair debate And that's something that we need to make sure that we are getting the best deal for our candidates. And that is something that would not have happened. We wouldn't we wouldn't have been able to trust Fox to have a fair debate with all of our candidates.
2: One. uh, What if you could say, okay, you get one of these debates, but you have to have Chris Wallace, Shep Smith or Juan Williams as the people Mm. who are asking the questions?
0: Absolutely. There are
2: three fair people on on Fox, I would would argue.
0: They are three fair people. There may be others, but I know those
2: three.
3: By the way, one idea that's sort of floating around out there right now is for MSNBC to invite Chris Wallace or Shep Smith to join them in moderating a debate.
0: Interesting. I hadn't Hmm. heard that one. I'm not
3: sure that's going to happen. Right. But, you know, because I mean, look, even if it is Chris Wallace or Shep Smith, right, you still have to... There's still people behind them that are putting this stuff on that have a direct channel to Donald Trump.
2: But anyhow, in response to my question, what if you could say, "Yeah, you can have all these debates, but look, no Sean Hannity here, right, and no Laura Ingraham, right, or no Lou Dobbs,
0: absolutely." And if and if when we were looking at the proposal, we were looking at someone like Chris Wallace. But at the same time, what was happening at Fox was not with those reporters who are fair. It was the It's the very top of Fox. So it's the executives at Fox. And even the debate that you were – that where Donald Trump was tipped off about a question, you – you know, many debates have fair reporters. But the problem is the executives at Fox. And the reporters don't have control of that. And so while we are comfortable with certain reporters there, we do not trust the, the top of the network who has control – of the coverage who is in touch with donald trump and it sounds like from the article that donald trump has an open line of communication when it comes to you know what is happening in their day-to-day coverage which is unbelievable
2: right by the way for the record um jane mayer asserts in the piece that donald trump um sh- she talks to a couple of people who told her that donald trump had been tipped off about megan kelly's mm-hmm. opening question which Donald Trump is sort of still recovering from about calling women pigs and dogs mm-hmm. and all that kind of stuff, right? Um, but that he'd been tipped off about it—that maybe not the exact question, but get ready because this is this is coming. Yeah. Uh, so the other thing that I've heard people say, um, and and even some journalists say who are who are not on Fox, that um, that this might be a mistake because there are a lot of people who watch Fox and. Um, A lot of people that we want to get, Democrats want to get their message out to. And so by not reaching that audience, you're sort of, you know, maybe hurting your own cause.
0: And I, we are listening to those arguments. Um, We also think that just because Fox is not hosting a debate, that doesn't necessarily mean that we shouldn't be talking to those voters and that we shouldn't be going on Fox and taking that message directly to Fox. I think then I encourage candidates to go on all the networks and particularly Fox um, and to make their case to them. And I know that the chair of the DNC will continue to do that. He was just on Chris Wallace two weeks ago. Um, I will do that. There are others in our party that will continue to do that. But I agree that we should not just say, you know what, Fox, we're not going to deal with you anymore. That's not where our party should go. We believe that we should engage them um, because they do have a viewership that is very important.
2: Right. Uh, but for for now at least, and we'll see what happens in the general election, that's, that's out of your purview, right? That's the mm-hmm. Commission on Presidential Debates that decides which networks.
0: Yeah. There is a commission that deals with the general election.
2: Right. Uh, very, very exciting time. Now, meanwhile, um, there are some other things going on, like a big vote this week in the Senate
0: mm-hmm.
2: on the national decoration, right?
0: It'll it'll be interesting. Um, I'm, as I've seen, is it will likely pass and then it will go to the Senate. Uh, I mean, sorry, it will go to the president and right. he will veto it, which is something that is pretty remarkable to me because what you're seeing right now is for the second time, the president is bypassing Congress, right? Not only did he do the national emergency. But now Congress is saying no, and he will then go ahead and veto that, which is remarkable. I mean, it's not necessarily completely surprising, but it just shows you that there is a bipartisan sort of movement not to move forward with this wall, and especially when it comes through national emergency and money for our defense. And so I think that Congress and Republicans understand that the American people don't want this wall, and it's not popular. So, I, if I were Republicans, I'd be extremely frustrated right now because they just have a president who is moving forward with his agenda for political reasons.
2: Right. Um, I met, I talked to Elena Schneider a little bit about this, and I'm sure you've seen some of the articles. There's another one, that, I think, front page of the Post or the New York Times today. Uh, no, it was yesterday in the New York Times Sunday, a section about. So many Democrats being nervous that the Democratic Party is going to blow it uh, in twenty twenty, uh, even though Donald Trump is so vulnerable that the Democratic Party would blow it by going too far to the left. Um, is that a, is that a worry at the DNC?
0: Uh, what I'm not, I I do believe Donald Trump is a real threat. I will say that I think that people underestimate, you know. Donald Trump himself, and I don't think that we should take anything for granted, Um, and that is why we are investing right now in organizers in battleground states and really trying to gear up for the general election so that we're handing over an infrastructure to the nominee um, while they are in a primary, and we're, you know, we're still doing the work to get them elected in the general. Um, Listen, I think that overall right now what you have is you have, as you mentioned, over a dozen candidates who are crisscrossing the state talking about how are we going to expand health care? How are we going to raise wages? How you know are we going to lower the cost of prescription drugs? All of these issues that we know voters care about. How we get there, we might not all agree. And everyone is out there talking about their own idea. But that is for the American people to decide. They are going to decide, OK, what are the best ideas out there? But what I think that puts us in a strong position is that the fact that we're even having these conversations instead of Donald Trump, who is here trying to build a wall. So I think that right now people might say, like, Democrats are trying to go too far to the left. They're, you know, I- they're throwing out socialism because they believe that that's how they're going to that. That's how Republicans are going to win because they can't win on the ideas. But you know what? At least Democrats are out there talking about the issues and about issues that people care about. And so I think that right now this puts Democrats in a very strong position in order to win because we're taking it right to the voters and we're talking right to the voters instead of talking, calling people names and going out there and talking about a border wall.
2: Yeah. I mean, uh, uh, every time I hear that, I think, so what are we really talking about? Okay, we're talking about a $15 minimum wage. Is that so extreme? We're talking about Medicare, which is the best government program ever invented that works and is, and is helping so many millions and millions of Americans, just making it accessible to more Americans. Is that so extreme, right? We're talking about lowering the cost of prescription drugs. I mean, what's so radical? What's socialist about that? No, you know. So they throw this word around and even a tax on the wealthy. You look at the polling on it.
0: Yeah. It's through the roof. No, right. Sure
2: not that extreme either right yeah so, definitely gonna fight that back i'm not worried about that at <laughs> all anyhow it's gonna be very weird i can't wait to see who's on stage which night that's gonna be very weird. you'll
0: have to go bill
2: i'll be there <laughs> good luck Look at like working that out so it's great to see you
0: good to see you
2: follow the work of the dnc at democrats.org and then have a great monday folks this and come back and see us tomorrow bill press show